we have had our back against the wall from the beginning. I mean, that's how we were birthed, right? Reproductive justice came out of that very real sense of we kept fighting, we kept screaming, we kept trying to bring attention, not just to the issues and not just to our communities, but to even the strategies we thought would resolve some of these issues. And we weren't getting heard. The, the 12 women who coined the phrase reproductive justice in 1994 had reached the end of their rope, right? They had, they were, their backs were against the wall and they offered up reproductive justice as a tool forward. Welcome to episode one, part one of the Civil Liberties and Public Policy podcast, or CLIP. CLIP is building the reproductive justice movement by training the next generation of leaders. Each year, we prepare thousands of young folks to work on issues like the separation of immigrant families, paid family leave, abortion bans, the mortality rate of black mothers, healthcare discrimination faced by trans folks and people of color, the barriers LGBTQ community face when creating a family, and much, much more. I am your host, Al, office manager at CLIP, and I'm here with Jeannie, CLIP's communications coordinator, who stitches everything together and makes this podcast possible. Hey, this is Jeannie. Along with you, we are dropping into conversations with movement leaders, activists, educators, and students. We are excited to raise the voices of our invited guests while they tease out difficult conversations. This is an exploration of their thoughts, ideas, current and past works. These are complicated conversations that don't have simple answers. We hope that you hold the complexities with us. We recorded this on October 28th, 2020, a politically tense moment, two days after Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court, a week before presidential general elections, and seven months into the COVID-19 pandemic. We originally wanted to keep this as one episode, but the conversations were so rich and in-depth and we did not want to leave anything out. So we split this first episode into two parts. This morning, we are getting virtual coffee with Amy and Namratha while we discuss reproductive justice across the generational divide. In this first part, Amy and Namratha discuss the reproductive justice landscape that they have each inherited. Through their discussion, they discover that their lived experiences through different political moments are more similar than one might assume. All right, good morning, everybody. We're here today to discuss the nuances of intergenerational relationships within and to the reproductive justice movement. I'm really excited about this discussion and thank you, Amy and Lamratha, so much for joining us this morning. There's a lot going on these days and I'm really curious to hear what is bringing you joy. Hi, Al, this is Amy. I use she, her, hers pronouns or ella in Spanish. Um, I will say I look for joy in everything um, because I think that helps sustain me in the work. What's been bringing me joy, I would say, during the pandemic is I've been teaching myself how to quilt. Um, And there wasn't like a big plan to do this, um, but I have literally spent the vast majority of my free time during the pandemic quilting. And learning all kinds of things I never did and breaking all kinds of things I didn't know could break. Um, But that's just been a really good outlet for my energy. I find it really meditative. Um, And at the end of it, I have a concrete thing that sort of I can use in my house or give as a present, Um, Be you know, besides cookies and things, because I didn't take to rage baking. I could have, but 
then it would have meant my husband and I had to eat like 10,000 chocolate chip cookies. And even that's, that hits me at my limit too. So right now the things that are make, bringing me joy are really making things um, and teaching myself things. Um, hi, this is Namrata. You she, her pronouns. Amy, I was going to say that that um, limitation um, just is not a limitation for me. Um, <laughs> I have been baking and um, eating the 10,000 cookies and brownies, all of them. Um, but I would say that the thing that's bringing me joy, I feel like, you know, if any listeners, after we put this out there, comment and be like, that's not what's supposed to happen, please let me know. But I've been very into oil cleansing my face. Um, I've been learning about skincare from my girlfriend, my younger sister's girlfriend. Um, and there's this thing where you, apparently, it's like a, a first step of cleansing where you like rub oil on your face and that there's all these, apparently, the like oil plugs come out. And I can see them on my hands. Like, this is so satisfying. Um, but I think maybe that that's not, I'm not supposed to be so aggressive about it. Um, but it, it does, I look forward to it every night. I'm going to oil cleanse. And I'm going to see all my little oil clogged pores come out. It's going to be amazing. So that brings me joy. Yes, thank you. I love the focus on something physical that both of you are doing, you know, like something that is maybe less like focused on m just mind thoughts and all of that. It's something with your hands and getting to know yourself in a different way. I love that. I can definitely relate to those experiences. Uh, to jump right into our conversation, I'm really interested to hear what you think about yourself and your generation. Is this something that you think about often? Is it an important part of your identity formation? And how do you think it's, re it's related to the reproductive justice movement? I do think quite a bit about my generation, my age, um, how it's shaped me and my activism or not. Like what are the experiences that I rely on? Um, and I think that's in part because when I first came into the reproductive justice movement, which is more than 15 years ago now, the movement was still very nascent, right? And, and Namrata and I talked a little bit about this, that, um, you know, I, I knew I've met RJ reproductive justice founding mothers like Loretta Ross and Tony Bond and Mabel Thomas. Um, I could sit at a conference with them and, you know, sit and talk with them at lunch. So there was a different kind of access to them because um, when I came into the movement, the movement was still quite young. And granted, I would say we're only about 25 years old now, so that still feels young. But um, I, I came in, I was a young executive director, and I say that because that is often how I was treated Right, like there was a category of young, um, and I resented it at the time because I felt that label of young was used to minimize me and minimize my agency and that of others who were in my age range, especially when it was applied to women of color and people of color. So I, I think some of those things have shaped how I came into movement, 
But also I worked, I spent the vast majority of my career working with young people, you know, people under the age of 25. So I was constantly recalibrating sort of how and what my engagement looked like so as to not perpetuate the ageism, right, Um, so as to not take on this, like, mom role, right, because I was clear they were not my children. I was not their mom. I was their colleague and peer and mentor and hopefully supporter. Um, So I think age is something that I've been conscious of. Um, And, you know, I'm 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 a Puerto Rican kid from New York, who grew up in the 80s, right? So I have I have memories of when crack hit the city. I have memories when HIV hit the city. Um, I have clear recollections of Reagan as president and then Bush as president. Like, they're also political and cultural moments that happened in my growing up and my um, consciousness raising, let's say that feel tied to a time and a place, right? New York City doesn't look the same anymore. Um, So, yeah, I think about it. And now I'm a middle-aged activist, right? I'm both middle-aged in my chronological age um, and sort of middle-aged in movement, right? Like I've been doing this for a little bit. I'm not new. I don't think I'm an elder yet, but... I don't know that that's really for me to decide either, right? In other words, there are people still who came and developed things before me, and there are people coming in after me. So I I feel middle-aged both in the movement and in my life. Um, And so I think it shapes how I interpret things, how I engage with things, how I engage with people. Um, And it's something that I've definitely spent time thinking about over my career, if you will. This is Namrata. She, her, um, just to respond to the question, how do I think about myself and my generation? Um, I think of myself as a millennial. Um, I think, though, I don't draw the distinction so much between millennials and, you know, whoever is younger. I think I think of myself in this category of young people whose experience is characterized by a certain sense of existential dread. Um and I think that that really carries through the reproductive justice movement, but not but almost as a strength. Um, I think that we kind of receive the history that you lived through, Amy, and, and uh, have received kind of like all of the moments of accumulating history and are kind of constantly arriving at our, our new history and our new future because it seems like something is happening every day that is changing the course. Um, and it's kind of like rapidly just, I don't know, snowballing into something. And so I think that what's characteristic of my generation, how I think of myself and I think of how we think of the reproductive justice movement, that we're pretty radically like unrestrained by the idea of the possible, you know, because it's, it's almost like we've, we've, we've uh, followed all of those threads down the line what is possible or what is probable. And so now we're in this moment where kind of radical injustice needs radical change. And now my generation is like, and I guess young people, young people in general are like, okay, well, you've done everything. Now we have to do impossible things. And that's what we're going to do. So that's that's how I would see 
my, or that's how I think about my generation um, and young people and how we're we're carrying that into our our activist work. I would totally agree with that. As as a Generation Xer, I, that resonates with me in terms of how I see a lot of young people moving through the world and identifying problems and imposing solutions, right? And solutions that feel really hard and yet also would actually address the issue as opposed to something more cosmetic, right? Like it feels like, um, yeah, what you said made absolute sense to me. It's like that is absolutely what it feels like in my experience to engage with younger folks who are also being asked to do more with less on a much greater scale than before, right? Yeah. Well, I actually have a question for you, Amy, because I feel like we talk a lot about young people and doing this thing where it's like, okay, your back is against the wall. What are you going to do? And the the wall is, you know, the end of the world um, in a lot of ways. But I'm wondering if that's not an experience that's exclusive to young people. It's just kind of uniquely bad. But, you know, it's all relative. I'm wondering (laughs) if you also felt that way when you were growing up. Yes. I actually have a, a... a really concrete example, and it relates back to the Civil Liberties and Public Policy Program, or it goes back to CLIP. So, okay, I'm going to start messing up dates here, so that's a signal of (laughs) being older, right? I think it was when George W. Bush was reelected. It was an election, but I'm pretty sure it was his reelection. And I had to go to Washington, D.C. for a meeting um, of, you know, a lot of our reproductive health rights justice folks. And Marlene Gerber-Fried was one of the people there, right, our colleague at CLIP. And I was on the Amtrak reading the New York Times, you know, cover to cover, because I wanted to understand how we could have reelected George W. Bush. And I was beyond bereft. I, w- I was spinning, right? But I had to show up to a meeting and actually function, right? And I was an executive director at the time. I get into this room. Now, I don't remember what meeting it was, why I was there, who else was in the room. The only thing I remember is walking into the room, sitting directly across from Marlene, putting my paper on the table and just looking at her like, what are we going to do? What the hell have we just done? What I mean, I'm just sort of foaming at the mouth with with rage and grief and and terror and like now what? And Marlene just looked up to me and she said, "We survived Reagan's reelection too." And I felt like I'd gotten punched in the stomach with that, in the best sense of the word. In that, it snapped me back to a bigger, we have had our back against the wall from the beginning. I mean, that's how we were birthed, right? Reproductive justice came out of that very real sense of we kept fighting, we kept screaming, we kept trying to bring attention, not just to the issues and not just to our communities, but to even the strategies we thought would resolve some of these issues. And we weren't getting heard. The the 12 women who coined the phrase reproductive justice in 1994 had reached the end of their rope, 
right? They had, they were, their backs are against the wall and they offered up reproductive justice as a tool forward, right? And so with Marlene in that moment, it just reminded me that in that moment, I wasn't alone and that this wasn't a, a, a singular event, that there were going to be many more events like this, unfortunately, but that we had had practice in overcoming that. Um, and not that the reelection of Bush was exactly the same as the reelection of Reagan, right? And I would never say that the election, the presidential in 2016 was similar to Bush's election either. But it was just helpful to realize that I think for those of us who've dedicated our lives to seeking justice and achieving justice, that our backs up are up against the wall more often than not. Like that we're fighting from that place, that we our activism is often birthed from that place of the options are limited or what the power structures are offering me as responses to the needs of me and my needs, the needs of my community are insufficient. And so I'm going to have to fight for what I need. I'm going to have to fight for what my folks need. And sometimes I get pushed all the way back before I make any progress, right? Um, so in that sense, for me, it has been helpful to be a part of a continuum in the movement of like, young people and people who might be older but are new to movement, right, and people who have been in this a long, long time because, um, one, it breaks the isolation of feeling like I'm the only one or that I'm the one that everything depends on because that's not true. Um, but also it's a reminder that we have overcome different things with different strategies. Right. That's why I also think reproductive justice is so amazing because it calls in the human rights framework and, and, it, and it calls in the human rights defenders from all over the world, right, who have done great things and show us ways forward. Um, but the short answer to your question, Namratha, is I do. I think every generation of folks feels that there are insurmountable things that 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 they almost don't have a choice but to confront, right? It's right in front of us. It's huge. There doesn't seem to be a way through it or around it, and yet we make decisions to say we won't accept that and and take on the fight. Um, and your fights will look different than my fights will in some ways, and in some ways they won't. But I think every generation has has that kind of a moment or moments. Um, I, I think responding to a little bit of what you're saying, Amy, um, that is really not something that I had considered before pretty much this moment. Um, the idea that, because this is one of the ways I've really characterized my young people in my generation, is like we have exhausted, or people before us have exhausted every other option, what are we going to do now? But, you know, it is true that at any given point in history, the people you know, fighting in that time have probably felt like you have exhausted every other option. There's nowhere to go. Um, and so you kind of have to be ferocious in the best possible ways. And mm -hmm. I guess if I'm thinking about then what makes my young people now, what characterizes them, I think it's the idea that the future that we're heading into is kind of fundamentally unknowable. You know, like the, and I think about kind of what you were saying about um, 
how old people are, young people, or how, uh, how older people who might be new to the movement. So one of the things that we had talked about is the idea of movement age versus chronological age. You know, right. how how long have you been in the movement? And I think one of the things that's really important is to consider like when your political consciousness was formed, or kind of what context you were in. I mean, when you had those formative experiences, and I think for a lot of young people, because information is so much more available, um, we're coming into that uh, really articulated political consciousness a little bit earlier. We have access to all kinds of materials, but then on the other side of that, we're hyper-aware and hyper-vigilant of the world around us, and taking that with the fact that the world that we grew up in and I think this is a hallmark of millennials, the world that we grew up in before the age of you know, technology looks so drastically different than the world that we're in. Um, and so we have this very strange sense of nostalgia about the past. There's air quotes around that. Um, <laughs> and we we have a very hard time like reconciling the past with the present. And I'm also thinking about how time isn't you know, linear. And so progress is not this one forward march. Um, and how we, it's more kind of like this pendulum of what the, the types of things that we're responding to, the difference now is that we cannot even begin to envision realistically what that, what this thing we're marching into looks like. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to what I was saying about, you know, in the absence of having something, having a path, to look at and say, okay, I know where I'm going, we kind of, that makes us a little bit more predisposed to doing the impossible things. Absolutely. And, I mean, let's also be honest, the the world that, that millennials and Gen Z and whatever we call that next generation, that the world that you've inherited is dramatically more vulnerable than it was when I was growing up, right? Climate change was not language that was in my vocabulary as a teenager, as a young adult. Even when I first came into movement, it's just it wasn't present in that way. When we talked about environmental issues, it was, you know, tree huggers, right? And, And people who cared about our, I mean, the state of the planet has changed dramatically in the last 20, 25 years and not for the better. And so that's, I would say, one marker of younger people and their activism is the recognition that those who came before did not steward the planet and its resources well, and it has therefore endangered everybody, right? But we clearly have not shown any capacity to fix it, right? Um, and and it really is younger people who are connecting sort of, you know, who are making those connections in a very different way than I would say my generation did at that same time. Um, I think younger people are making those connections unapologetically, um, right? Um, and And I think younger people are holding us to account about what did you do? And what are you still doing around that, right? And I use the environment and and climate change as one example because I do think um, 
we are all sort of activated or radicalized by things and moments we experience. And for some of us, it's a very personal thing. And sometimes it's a more, you know, cultural, societal thing. Um, so, so my question for you, Namratha, is like, what were some of those moments that radicalized you, activated you, raised your consciousness, sort of pushed you toward this, this world of activism that we live in? Well, what a big question. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of perpetually unanswerable question. Um, everything, you know, my whole life. <laughs> um, but I think that's that's true. That's why I'm so interested in the like the generational conversation because in so many ways we're really just speaking from our own perspectives and what was around us. And I always kind of have to question the ways in which we replace generational analysis with class analysis and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, because what we're saying, you know, the, the kind of the royal we here is that there's always been people who have been attuned to kind of the forthcoming disaster of climate climate change, and it's always been folks who have been fighting that. But I think that um, the question, I guess, is how present is it in the room with you? Mm -hmm. You know, is it something that you can see in the future um, and you're fighting against it? Um, or is it something that is, like, very much here? And I can't – I don't really know how to characterize it for your generation or anyone in your generation, those who are very active in, in that fight. But I know for very young people who, like, just don't care, you know, sure. in my generation, who are very much comfortable in, in where they're at. And that's kind of where that class analysis comes in, where it's like if you can be a young person but have absolutely no personal stake right. in making the world a better place. And I know people like that, but I also know people who, even those people are at least somewhat aware of what is present in the room with them, mm -hmm. I think. I don't really know them. <laughs> I don't make it my business to know them. I um, that. But... I guess just for what radicalized me, I think it's the fact that everything is present in the room all the time, um, and that and and that that idea that we have really gone everywhere and we're not going really in the right direction, which is not to take credit away or discredit the work that has been done, but again the royal we that we've been inching towards something big and radical, but, you know, the mainstream seems to co-opt it. The state seems to be able to co-opt it at any given moment. So, you know, our movements, so however much momentum they have, they become like really de-radicalized. Um, or the work, I don't want to say the movement, I want to say that the work that we attempt to do becomes really de-radicalized because it continues to be co-opted. And so I, I think about um, how did I come into this is with that recognition that something's not working and that something has to be done. I've always really seen myself as kind of a pragmatist. Um, I think that people think that idealism and pragmatism are diametrically opposed. But for me, they're kind of the same thing. Because um, I feel like I, in my life I've found that the right thing is almost always the most effective thing. Or the ethical thing is almost always the most effective thing. Um, and I guess as far as, like, what were some moments that really moved me? I mean, what's on my mind 
is just recently, yesterday. Is today Wednesday? No, two days ago. Um, the confirmation of our friend ACB uh, to the Senate, that was such a moment. Um, I think it's these moments of just sitting in true recognition that we have arrived somewhere that from which we can't turn back. Um, and that doesn't mean it can't get better, we can't make forward change, but we have truly, because I think I spent most of the this whole process kind of being like, maybe something will change or something will, like maybe she won't actually get confirmed. You know, right. something's going to happen. And I think that waiting in that pause um, has been, well, I guess that's not really what I want to say, the moment of recognition that this is real. Um, those are the moments that have really pushed me forward because you can think about it theoretically mm -hmm. all we want and then we kind of have to then contend with what is real. I think another moment that radicalized me, it really pushed me, um, was this reading a climate report in that um, was basically saying like, oh, we thought we had 20 years, we have maybe eight. Uh, right. before these effects are irreversible. Um, and then having to make peace with that in a way, to say, like, okay, something is irreversible, very much like, you know, the current state of the Supreme Court. Um, like, this is not reversible, but there is something that we can do about it. And having to really dig into, like, those really deep places of, of hope within mm -hmm. myself to say, okay, this seems like the it was, before this happened, it seemed like the worst possible outcome. Now that it has happened, what am I going to do? Um, and having to do that type of digging, that is what has radicalized me. And I think for me, being a millennial, we have had so many moments like that where, you know, in very quick succession. I think I've, I've read that as being characteristic of millennials, is that we've lived through two once-in-a-lifetime economic recessions. Uh, we've lived through quite a few of these once-in-a-lifetime events, um, like back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. Um, now we are living through coronavirus, um, and we're living through all these things, and we're having to make take that step to say, this is pretty much the unimaginable worst possible scenario. What do we do now? Um, and then... All of it, because I, I also find myself like pretty cynical and like nihilistic at times. Um, and then, but then when I am really forced to say, what am I going to do now? I find that um, I'm actually very much tenacious. I have tenacious faith. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's what, that's what I have to say about what radicalized me, having to dig into these moments where I could not imagine something worse, and now I have to imagine something better mm -hmm. after being given that. Thanks for dropping into our conversation today and being part of our community. We're inspired by what we've heard, and we hope you are too. Don't hesitate to reach out to us if you'd like to get involved. We want to know your thoughts or ideas of who we should interview, including yourself. 
We here at CLIP are continuing to launch the next generation of reproductive justice leaders, and we hope you're ready to help knock down barriers and work towards liberation for all of us. You can find us at clipclpp.hampshire.edu or email us at clip at hampshire.edu, and we will put the link and email down below.